Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacadvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. You can find us on our website, historyofsacadvelo.com, or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sacarvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Uh, anyway, hello, I'm Fry. Welcome. <laughs> you do not get to hear any of that ranting I just did. Because that's going to be cut out. It will. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this week, we're continuing on the saga of Pope Joan with why, Pope Joan? Why, Joan? Why? Why, Joan? We've covered the narrative. We've covered the scores, the origins, and the arguments for and against her existence. And now we have to answer that big question, which is, why, Pope Joan? If she didn't exist, what purpose does the legend actually serve? What does she represent about the church and about popes and about women? And then we're going to wrap up with a few alternative explanations that have been posed and take a look at portrayals of Joan in media. It should be an interesting episode, but we have some stuff to dig into. So I feel like I'm going to be angry about most of it. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think that there are a lot of good reasons when we look and we ask, why Joan? So so let's start talking about women in the church in the medieval period, because it is a period of relative juxtaposition that led to quite prevailing anxiety about a woman's role in the church and the role of church for women. So although medieval misogyny is still absolutely the name of the game, religious women were not without power and influence. Women did run religious communities. And it's probably not a coincidence that Joan was supposed to have come from Mainz or Fulda in Germany, as these were both religious communities known to have very capable and very powerful female leaders. 
Now, the era in which chroniclers start to write about Joan was also an era where women were establishing new areas of religious freedoms, which caused a great deal of anxiety for the church. And we see this exemplified in a group called the Beguines. Or you might hear Beguines, but it's definitely Beguines. The baguettes. (laughs) They are not baguettes, they are women. They're Beguines. (laughs) Which makes Beguines seem like it should be the feminization of baguettes, so... Look what you did. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. We should, we'll just have to bake some beguines to go with our <laughs> baguettes. The beguines were founded, more or less, in the 13th century in Northern Europe. Although, as we'll see, nothing about the beguines was ever exactly formalized or officially recognized, which becomes part of the problem. So in a very, very brief overview, the Beguines were lay women who committed themselves to a life of spiritual dedication and semi-monastic living without taking formal vows. So they were not nuns, but they have a lot of overlap with nuns. They lived in removed communities called Beguinages, living together and educating one another, just like nuns. They structured their lives around prayer and religious contemplation and service for the poor, just like nuns. But because they didn't take formal vows, they didn't give up their personal property or identity, and they were not permanently attached to an order or under clerical supervision, And they could leave whenever they chose and could go and get married when they left. Because they're not married to Jesus. They're not married to Jesus. This is exactly it. So you can see how these women are existing completely outside of the social and clerical norm, which makes the church very uncomfortable. And even more concerning for the church, these women had a connection with the divine outside of the realm of the church, and in some areas would have been considered to possess spiritual authority equal to the priests. So they're going to be a little bit worried about these women who are doing their own spiritual thing and getting looked to as spiritual leaders and examples of moral piety that are out of their control. Oh, man, got to control it. Yeah, they got to control these damn beguines. And we see a similar concern over the increase of female mystics, which also become very prevalent in the Middle Ages, claiming to commune directly with God through visions, like Catherine of Siena and Marjorie Kemp, very, very influential, very, very highly regarded women. And because Beguines and mystics were not generally seen as heretical, with some notable exceptions, this meant that in the 13th century, the role and influence of a woman in the church was nowhere near as clear as it had been before. This is no longer a world where your choice is wife and mother or none. Women could embrace lives of independent education and religious piety all at once, while separating themselves from a relatively oppressive traditional system. 
And of course, whenever we have this type of ambiguity over a social role in society, it leads to conservative backlash, which might have easily led to questions about just how much authority these women presumed to have, and the legend of Pope Joan may have easily begun in discussions about these very unconventional female societies. Makes sense, right? Well, just how far are these women going to presume to go if their spiritual authority is equal to a priest? Are they equal to a pope, too? Never. Could you imagine a female pope? Rebel, rebel. And this was not the only place for churchmen to be concerned about the role of women in the church, because between the time that Pope Joan allegedly existed in the 9th century and when the accounts were written about her, the church had undergone a very unstable and scandalous period known as the Seculum Obscurum, or the pornocracy, which entirely degraded the prestige of the papacy. Pornocracy began roughly with the papacy of Pope Sergius III in 904, and spanned over half a century until the end of the papacy of Pope John XII in 964. And because we are obviously going to cover this period in heavy detail very soon, with all of these popes getting their own episode, I'm just going to give you the headlines. Yeah, what's up with this porn? Corruption, corruption, corruption. We're talking murder, sex scandals, depositions, anti-popes, simony, and nepotism. And some of the greatest nepotism that we'll see concerning the vast majority of the popes in this time period all come from the same family. Amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, um... It's a journey. Remember how I've been complaining about the forever pope that I'm writing? That ended up being really short when you actually condensed it all down. Yeah, yeah. It's because of all of these details that end up happening in the pornocracy. There's a lot of drama and a lot of people we have to look at to at least make sense of the whole picture. So, yeah. But the other key feature of the pornocracy, and the reason it gets this punny nickname, if you will, is women. Or more specifically, two women. Theodora of the House of Tusculum and her daughter Marozia, who play a significant role in the choosing and influence of these popes, acting as lovers for some, murderers for others, and even mother or grandmother for others. These are very significant women for the time. They even held civil titles like Senatrix of Rome. They're on par with the senators. These women wielded an absolutely extraordinary amount of power and were considered to be the direct powers behind the papacy at the time, playing these men as puppets on the papal throne. And of course, they were denounced as shameless whores and prostitutes and worse. And during this saculum obscurum, the church's reputation sunk to arguably its lowest point thus far. And you can absolutely see how this would have only further entrenched later's chronicler's view of women in the church as a very dangerous threat, and that a woman on the papal throne would mean only disaster and degradation for the whole of the church, because they've, they've seen this. They have this as their background, and they're going, look what happened when they were behind the power. So 
Pope Joan as a woman deceiving the church for power who also couldn't control her own sexual appetites absolutely fits into the tropes of Theodora and Marozia so directly it's almost too on the nose. It is a little. So this legend could have been created as a means of discussing the pornocracy and criticizing the Theophylacti family in overt satire. But it might not be just for them. The legend may very well have been created as a means to express anti-papal sentiment and criticisms of all the popes of the age. Since they were also being very, very slutty. Exactly! And famous church historian and Cardinal Cesare Baronius suggests that the Pope Joan myth is actually coded in a way that might have been designed to criticize the actual Pope John VIII, because remember, sometimes Joan is called Pope John VIII, who was allegedly extremely effeminate and weak, and so easily compared to a woman. How dare! Craig Rastici's book says that this was because he accepted the election of a patriarch in Constantinople who had been previously excommunicated in an effort to prevent schism, and so he was called womanish for compromising. You know what? They really gotta stop being little about compromises. Like, that's how our friend, our friend Honorius got excommunicated. Right? It's just, and you know, to, to suddenly make all that compromising a bad and womanish and effeminate thing to do, like, we are going to cover Pope John VIII and we're going to do all, we're going to deal with that whole Fodian schism and we'll see how we feel about how womanish or, un, or how compromising he's being. Man, some people have some toxic masculinity they need to work out. Right? And it is definitely leading to some very salty and sources. Now, similarly to this and the idea of coding this as satire, historian Onofrio Panvinio suggests that the myth was to criticize John Twelfth for his many, many mistresses, and that he might have actually even had a mistress called Joan, who was a significant influence on him. So... This whole satire piece might have been saying that his mistress Joan was the real Pope of the era, you know? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Guess who wears the pants in this relationship? Or, you know. Pope Joan might have also been a satirical attack on the huge influx of anti-popes at this time, because such instability and so many claims to the papacy in this era means for all anyone knows, there could have been a female anti-pope. It makes for excellent criticism of the chaos. So there are many reasons that Pope Joan might have been created to express anti-papal sentiment. Scandal, powerful women, weak popes, instability, and more. So when we look at Pope Joan in hindsight, it seems that she becomes a manifestation for all of the papal anxieties of the day. And that is why the myth lasts so much longer than the period it actually challenges, because Pope Joan then continues to be a symbol to criticize the church in the wake of a whole movement about criticizing the church. That's to say that Pope Joan, as a legend, most certainly stayed alive thanks to the Protestant Reformation 
which co-opted Joan as the perfect symbol against Catholicism. And these Protestants doubled down, utilizing the Joan myth to represent all of the ills and the depravities of Catholicism and the corruption of the church, right? They're presenting Catholicism as a church so corrupt that a woman could deceive the curia all the way to the highest office. This is gold for them. This is a myth that they just suddenly go, hey, why is no one using this to attack you so directly? And this is also where the church actually gets a little more active in trying to deny the existence of Pope Joan. Because up until the point of the Protestant Reformation, there was sort of a general acceptance that maybe this happened and the Catholic Church had a complete lack of urgency to deny these rumors. It's only when the myth is actually turned against them that they make the effort. And the first official refutation of the Pope Joan story doesn't come until Pope Clement VIII's rejection of the myth in 1601. Not forget, she was supposed to have existed in the ninth century. That's a long time to just kind of accept it as sort of whatever. Now, nevertheless, Protestant pamphlets of Pope Joan proliferated across Europe. She became the star of anti-Catholic plays and polemical dialogues, like Alexander Cook's Pope Joan, a dialogue between a Protestant and a Papist, Frederick Spanheim's Histoire de la Papesse Jeanne, and Da Papa Femina, just to name a few. And these plays and these pamphlets are wildly, wildly popular. She was the ultimate attack on the papacy and on the caliber of the Pope, which is seen in the perfect example when Jan Hus, founder of the Hussites, argued that, quote, the most unlettered layman, or a female, or a heretic and antichrist, may be Pope. It certainly starts to tarnish this whole successor of Peter idea, right? The Protestant, Joan was the whore of Babylon and the mother of abominations, as well as the Antichrist, which, to be fair, is what they called all of the popes. And we could go on and on covering the various inclusions and uses of Pope Joan, but that could be an exploration all of itself. And there is already an excellent book which has done precisely that, called The Afterlife of Pope Joan by Craig Rustici. Also, just as an interesting aside, but worth pointing out that despite Pope Joan being the perfect kind of fuel for the Protestants to attack the church, the one place that this doesn't really get commonly done was in England. You think why the Protestants in England might not have done this? Oh, no, my brain has fallen out the backside of my head. Because Protestantism in England was headed by Queen Elizabeth I. Oh my god, okay, that makes sense. Sexism, it just so happens that most of the denouncements of Joan as Pope were fairly valid of Elizabeth as queen and head of the English church as well. So, you know, that whole holding an office traditionally for a man, the usurpation of the supremacy of the church, sleeping with trusted advisors, you know, it would have backfired. This is not as popular as as church attack fuel in England. 
So now that we've done some in-depth analysis into what the myth of Pope Joan means, I want to veer a little bit off course and talk about some of the more unusual explanations that are posited for Pope Joan. So these are all the theories that argue that Pope Joan could have existed, but in a different way than the legends present. None of these are like super compelling, but they do get a little wild, so seems like they should be included. So first, let's look at Joan as an anti-pope. Now, in their book, The Female Pope, The Mystery of Pope Joan, historians Rosemary and Daryl Pardo suggest that maybe Joan wasn't a pope at all, but was instead a full-fledged anti-pope. They point to the early 12th century during the papacies of Victor III, Urban II, and Pascal II, where there were at least four anti-pope contenders in quick succession during a period of heightened instability, papal siege, the occupation of Rome by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, and then the sacking of the city by the Normans. So they argue that it's entirely possible that yet another anti-pope this one female, could have popped up and been lost in the chaos. And there is an anti-pope, John VIII, from roughly around this time. But unfortunately for this theory, there is no other evidence for this argument other than pointing at this era and going, damn, that's a crazy period. Maybe she existed there. Yeah. That's pretty much their argument. Hey, stuff was really crazy then, so maybe Pope Joan. Next, let's look at Joan as widow slash mistress. There are other suggestions that Joan wasn't a pope at all, but instead the lover of a pope. In Craig Rastici's book, he cites suggestions that she might have been the secret widow of Pope Leo IV, who we just released, or a spurned mistress who made a bunch of noise after being cast aside by a pope, and therefore suddenly was confused with a pope. Again, not anything more to give this hypothesis any legs, but it starts to fit with this whole idea of scandalous women. But the most unusual alternative explanation for a pope is one that is presented in an article called Pope Joan, A Recognizable Syndrome, by Maria New, a doctor and professor at the Icken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So this is not an article from a historian. This is an article from a medical doctor. And Dr. New suggests that Pope Joan may have in fact had classical 21 hydroxylase deficiency causing congenital adrenal hyperplasis. Or, in more recognizable terms, she might have been a hermaphrodite. Ah. Or more specifically, what she's arguing for is that she was a male-presenting pseudo-hermaphrodite who unknowingly became pregnant as they would not have known that they possessed female reproductive organs. So, classical 21-hydroxylase deficiency is a prenatal condition that affects the adrenal gland and hormone levels in the fetus, resulting in ambiguous reproductive organs and hormone productions. Now, if we take into account that what we said last time about bodily deformity barring men from becoming clerics, 
if Joan were to have had external female genitalia as well as male genitalia, and someone knew that, then they wouldn't have been a cleric in the first place. But if she had had only male presenting genitalia and internal female reproductive organs, she might not have known. Where does the baby come out? Well, this is, this is the question, right? This is where we get into a crazy sort of miscarriage situation where she falls off a horse. And maybe it's actually a situation where she was rushed to surgery and they found a baby. And who knows, right? If this, if this argument is to be given any legs. And this also maybe presents another option for the sedia stericoraria being used. But again, if Joan wasn't even aware of possessing female reproductive organs, then no one else would have been either. This presents a possible explanation, but only if there was more physical evidence to prove she existed at all. So those are some of my favorite alternative explanations. Why does Joan still have such crazy staying power today? And I think maybe it's for all the same reasons that she had for being created in the first place. The Catholic Church is still very active in its debate about the role of women in the church and the possibility of female priests. So Pope Joan, who bested her male counterparts as an educated scholar and capable theological leader, seems to argue a place for women in that environment as long as we ignored how she allegedly died. In the words of Craig Rustici, What is more, one of Catholicism's proudest boasts concerning the papacy, that there is an apostolic succession, down from Christ to St. Peter, and thence on to his successors, all of them by this token divinely ordained, would be subject to some revision if a woman had been part of that unbroken line. For even if Joan had fooled the men around her, she could not have tricked God. He would have known her real identity and gender. Did God want a female pope? And if he did, where does that leave the current Catholic ban on women at the altar? So this is something to consider. We're going to wrap up the Pope Joan discussion with just a brief look at her portrayal in popular media. We already mentioned that she was featured heavily in 16th and 17th century plays and pamphlets for the Protestant purpose, but through the 19th and 21st century, she continues to be hugely popular. Joan still continues to appear in plays, like Ludwig Achim von Arnhem's Papstin Joanna from 1813, Cheese van der Plume's Pausen Johanna from 1996, and Top Girls by Carol Churchill in 1982, where famous women from history are dinner guests of the main character, and the guests explore the roles of women in society. Pope Joan also features in several novels, most recently Donna Wolfett Cross's Pope Joan, published in 1996. It is a highly fictionalized romance, historical romance-type novel. And I definitely have it. If oh, we were going to read, read a it. historical romance, 
It can't we can be read as it. bad as that one about unicorns. Well, here's the thing. I don't expect any super good accuracy of the time period because I've read the author's commentary on Pope Joan in a few interviews and went, wow, you're way off the mark. So <laughs> we're going to have to take her book at face value, but we can definitely read it and review it if we want. Amazing. Romance. There are also two movies about Pope Joan. One from 1972, which apparently was originally going to be about a modern woman in a psych ward having delusions about being Pope Joan, but all of the all of the psych ward stuff got cut out in the final edit, and it was just a Pope Joan movie. So all of the stuff with her being a woman who's having delusions wasn't released at all until 2009 under the name She Who Would Be Pope. Much, much later did they actually do this movie with its original intent. And that also happened to be the same year that a new Pope Joan movie was made, based more on Donna Wolfock Cross's version of the Pope Joan myth than the historical telling. And that's the one with John Goodman that we're going to watch because it's pretty readily available. And then, and this was brought up to me by Ari... (laughs) Sorry. All right, Pope Joan also features in a video game. And um, maybe you've played this video game. I don't know. So I'm probably going to tell you some stuff you know here. She's in Persona 5, where she shows up as a persona, which has been described to me by Ari as kind of like a Pokemon-ish. Oh, I haven't played that one, no. Apparently, Joan, as a persona in this game, is a strong opponent of injustice and is all for breaking societal bonds. And also, um, she's a motorcycle. Amazing. So I'm going to send you a picture of Pope Joan the motorcycle. I would love to see Pope Joan the motorcycle. She's a freaking motorcycle. I don't- <laughs> With a man. Yeah. That's Okay. And she can also evolve into another motorcycle. Oh, no. Oh, no. She evolves into Agnes, which, by the way, is also a name that shows up in some of the sources for Pope Joan. And she's she's a Batmobile. Oh, Agnes is a Batmobile. Don't ask me. I don't know. But Pope Joan. Huh. She's a motorcycle. So, yeah, this was a fun conversation to have with Ari and be like, Hmm, I'm going to have to tell Fry about that at some point. So here it is. I I think she makes a great motorcycle. She's great. She makes a great Batmobile, too. I mean, like, how regal. She's got that winged victory of Samothrace look going on kind mm-hmm, of there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something. But the motorcycle really, really caught me off guard. So that brings us to the end of our journey through the whole Pope Joan thing. We've covered all of the bases and speculated, and we've come out the other side. And there are so many things we could say and so many rabbit holes we could dig into. But I hope we've now done justice to all of the listeners who have been waiting for this one. So we're going to end with a final question, which is to you, Fry. Where do you stand with Pope Joan now? I mean... Pope Joan is, I don't know, I don't know if Pope Joan ever existed. It seems we're in a point where sources are pretty thick. Thick. Yeah. 
<laughs> we got some thick and juicy sources. It's true. So to have something like this that is not well documented, that there aren't like 14 men yelling about it in other sources, I I can't believe that she actually exists. I think that's a good point to take, but I also want to know from our listeners, where do you guys stand on Pope Joan? Please let us know. Send us comments. Find us on Twitter. Send us an email, pontifexpod at gmail.com. We're here to talk about Pope Joan with you. Breeze. Well, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am. Don't at me. That's a good (laughs) And on that note, that brings us to the end of the episode, which we have some thanks to make and some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So first off, I want to thank Eamon O'Brien, who sent us an absolute awesome wealth of sources. So thank you again. Super awesome. And we would like to absolve the following patrons of their temporal sins. So thank you very much to Allison Holloway, Alberto Aparicio, Genetic, Carolyn Higgins, Fairy Rose, George Davis, Daniel Unger, Emily Bavona, and Timber Varger. It's all one word, Timber Varger. I hope that's right. (laughs) I'm going with it. Ego te absolvo. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Anyways, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.